This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. On today's episode of Just Healthcare Daily, former CEO of Jacksonville-based Baptist Health, Hugh Green, shares insights and lessons learned from leading a health system board for almost two decades and opportunities for health system executives to further strengthen governance. It's Monday, October 19th, and I'm Alex Olkin with Just Healthcare Daily, where you get the headlines and health business and policy news in under 10 minutes. If you like the podcast, please leave us a review. It helps other listeners find the show. I'm going to turn the show over to my Just Healthcare colleague, Jennifer Stewart. She advises health systems on governance and recently spoke with senior governance advisor and former CEO of Jacksonville-based Baptist Health, Hugh Green. Hugh, it's such a pleasure to have you join us today. To start, can you please give us background on where you worked and how long you were there? Well, I have an unusually long career in one place. I served on the executive team of Baptist Health in Jacksonville for over 30 years and then served as the chief executive officer for 20 years. So clearly in this industry, that's not common. Uh, Prior to that, I actually worked for HCA for a number of years. When you were rising through the ranks, what was the management team's common perception of the role that the board should play within an organization? Well, I don't think many of us really understood the role of the board or its importance. Uh, We thought of them as a very nice group of people that we enjoyed being with. They were predominantly older white men, and they seemed to routinely somewhat rubber stamp the recommendations of the CEO and the executives. We often did uh, social events with them and their spouses, and quite frankly, I think it's just simply we didn't understand the criticality of the board's role. And once you became CEO, how did your perception of the board's role change over time? You know, there's a fundamental premise that uh, was very important to me. Uh, We were, are a not-for-profit, community-based health system. And so what drove us was to really serve the community. Therefore, I believed strongly, and I still do believe, that the shareholders or the owners of the entire health system really are the members of the community that we serve. And therefore, 
the board is really the voice of that community, or another way of saying it, they're the ones who are the voice of the shareholders. Uh, they don't exist merely to ratify what we think as leaders. They are the fiduciary body that partners with executives in fulfilling our fundamental community mission. And that's obviously different from the perspective that in some ways had been role modeled for you as you rose through the ranks. What do you think led to that change in perspective? You know, I think it was an evolving perception. Uh, it did uh, emanate from sort of that personal conviction about the role of the mission of the organization and the community focus. But I also think it's important to say that over time, the environment that we were uh, operating in was ever-changing and becoming much more challenging. And then finally, the health system itself became much larger and more complicated. So we increasingly needed strong minds and strong voices in the boardroom. And for folks who are listening, can you help anchor us to a point in time when you first started working with the board as CEO? Around what year was that? In 2000. So can you think back to what were some of the big challenges that you and the board were facing? Well, we were coming out of a merger, so we had to make a lot of decisions on what we were going to do as an organization going forward. The merger had been a 50-50 uh, endeavor, and so clearly we had to decide at what level would we focus on growth, but at the same time, we're trying to stabilize our workforce. We were trying to actually bring our commitment to our physicians back in line because there was a lot of uh, concern coming out of the merger. So it was a pretty tumultuous time when that 2000 came around and we came out of the merger. We called it a demerger. So over time, as that merger was more in the rearview mirror, how did your goals for the board change? Well, I think the primary thing to say is that the board increasingly moved to a strategic perspective. Uh, and some of those changes, quite frankly, that occurred were more structural. Uh, we began to separate the hospital boards from the health system board and let the hospital boards operate much more focused on those facilities and the operational kind of occurrences that were there. Um, the system board actually started meeting less often but also for longer meetings because we were having more significant strategic discussion. I also just say that the composition of the board changed during those early years. So we added some very bright business and community leaders who were going to think strategically. That was really inherent to who they were. And so very, very important changes that occurred pretty early on in my tenure. So you just alluded to it, but you talked through some of the structural changes you made to the board, new board members that you brought on. What were some of the other changes, if any, you needed to make to set up the board to uh, unlock the changes that you wanted to make? Well, I, again, there were the structural change that separated out the system board to focus on strategy. But there also was a um, move from a focus on hospitals and acute care to a broader health system perspective. And I think that occurred with many health system boards across the country, but they began to make a strong commitment to primary care, quite frankly, in the face of others abandoning primary care at that time, a commitment to behavioral health, a commitment to other ambulatory facilities. And so we began to have a much larger network across the community. Uh, and they also, over time, began to focus much more on the role in the community in terms of prevention and actually promoting the health of the community. 
And as I talk to other CEOs, one of the big changes that or challenges that often um, holds them back from making changes to their board is concerns about pushback or the change management aspect. And I'm curious, looking back, which of those changes were easiest and which ones were most challenging? Well, I think the structural changes were easiest. Uh, frankly, the hospital board members were very eager to serve their particular constituency, often a geographic constituency. In the case of our children's hospital, it was a population constituency. And they were very content to do that. So that structural change really was not problematic nor difficult. Probably the most difficult change we made was actually in the implementation of term limits and age limits. We also, at that time, were paying the board members minimally. With new board leadership in place, we were able to address those issues, put in place term limits and age limits. We had some members who, quite frankly, had stopped really being ineffective and were not that engaged, particularly from a strategic perspective. And our board leadership began to feel that it just wasn't appropriate for them to be taking compensation uh, for the work of a not-for-profit. So it was an interesting sort of three-pronged change, but I would have to be honest in saying uh, there was pushback. There were those who didn't favor those changes. And do you remember some of the arguments or concerns that you heard from board members who were less excited about implementing term limits or age limits? Well, you've got to realize these people had served for many years. And so they had a sense that bordered on entitlement, uh, that this is my seat on the board and they, um, they love the organization. So, you know, one had to do a lot of things to sort of make that transition easier. Uh, we started having meetings of the emeritus members of the board to bring them up to speed on strategy. We did that twice a year. We had an annual board dinner that we always invited the former board members to, so they felt still connected. But main, the main thing, it was very personal for them. And, uh, you know, one was certainly empathetic with that. And obviously compensating board members is one of those debates that has been longstanding in healthcare. Uh, what was your strategy or philosophy for overcoming some of the arguments in favor of compensating board members? Well, you know, we started compensating during a time in which those who did research showed the health systems of our size and larger had begun to do that for the purpose of attracting board members. You know, because often they were paid for other kinds of boards they were on. Um, what occurred over time, even in the research around the nation, is people began to back off of it. And we were part of that trend of saying, you know, we're really not having trouble recruiting really good people. They want to be a part of this organization. They see healthcare as an intellectually challenging and intriguing place to be. And it just wasn't necessary. And many of them bordered on being a little offended that we wanted to pay them. They just thought it was unnecessary and they wanted to turn around and give it back to the health system. But of course, there were some tax implications of that. So to be honest with you, it really was the board members themselves who said, we just don't think this is appropriate nor necessary. You had a really strong board, but I think many of them were actually drawn for out, from outside of healthcare. And I'm curious, what was your approach for giving them the information that they needed to have that strong contribution to strategy, and in some cases, to push you further? 
Well, they brought all kinds of different uh, perspectives. And uh, quite frankly, we diversified the board when it came to uh, age, race, gender. And uh, it's always amazing with someone who had an experience, whether it be legal or banking, whatever it is they brought in, actually had a perspective on most of our strategic issues that was unique to them. And that helped grow the, um, the breadth of the board's uh, input. Um, one of the changes that we did that I have not alluded to, if I may, was that we basically stopped presenting at the board in meetings. We started doing what we called white papers. They were to be two pages or less in which we highlighted the strategic issue and provided background, and they were supposed to be read prior to the board meeting. So that when we came in, we moved away from doing a lot of PowerPoint presentations, but ready to engage from the minute we introduced the subject on the agenda. And that was a key switch. And board members read those papers and came prepared to ask questions and to engage. And that was really a turning point to um, use the board meeting more effectively and, and again, move it to a more strategic perspective. One of the common concerns I hear from CEOs is that they would love to make that leap and they're worried their board members won't have the time or the ability to read the material ahead of time. What, how did you overcome that challenge? Well, you heard the part about less than two pages. And if you ask any of the executives in uh, my system that I would ask to prepare these white papers, uh, we would hold to that rule that it, you know, now occasionally there would be a display of some kind attached, but generally by keeping it brief, and very um, to the point, it really overcame the idea that I've got to do huge amount of readings before. They came to realize that these are actually easy to read and uh, gave them what they needed as a person outside of the industry to understand the context. Now, sometimes what was in the white paper would cause them to ask additional questions that we didn't address in the white paper, but that was okay. That, that was really the intent of the, the white paper to begin with. Is there a common misperception or myth out there that you see in the healthcare dialogue about how to work with boards that you'd like to address? I think there is this concern that somehow the board will undermine executive leadership, that it will take such control and start seeming to feel they know more than the executive leadership team. It's often you hear a CEO say, look, they don't understand this industry like I do. So therefore I need to basically make sure I don't let them get out of in front of me or we'll make mistakes. I will tell you the more informed they became, the more I think they became supportive. Uh, it actually had the, the opposite being educated and informed actually may have reinforced their own self-awareness of we aren't in this industry, we need to listen to the leadership even more. So that's the misperception that I think is predominantly out there that I need to make sure I don't let the board get too far ahead of me uh, because they don't understand the industry. What's your perspective on how CEOs can effectively work with boards during COVID, especially at a time when so many board meetings are moving online and virtual? Well, you know, what I would do is, I thought it was always very important for the CEO to be interacting individually with board members anyway, even during normal circumstances. 
And uh, it was not uncommon for someone to say something in a board meeting. And in the next 48 hours, I would call them back and say, I heard what you said, elaborate on it. I think that would be even more critical during the COVID time to um, constantly be staying in touch. You know, CEOs often make comment about the board takes so much time. And quite frankly, I think it should. Again, if you get back to they are the voice of the community, they are the fiduciary body. I don't know why CEOs wouldn't think it's very important to spend large amounts of times both together and individually with board members because it's really fundamental to your role. And, uh, you know, we work for the community through that board. So, you know, they should be holding us accountable. They should be bringing their voices to bear and to hear those voices clearly and to clarify what may have been said at a, a board meeting either way. Uh, I think the follow-up calls with individual board meeting members would be a way to overcome some of the lack of engagement. Maybe that's uh, brought about by lack of, uh, or by going virtually with meetings. What advice would you give your younger self uh, just starting out in the CEO role for working effectively with boards? Well, I think that uh, there is a um, misperception that I shared uh, a little bit at the beginning that I need not to let the board get out ahead of me. And that uh, I think often persons, and perhaps I shared this early on, is that I need to make sure I'm in control. And I'm not sure that I want the board to know too much or they might actually start taking control. Uh, I've come to realize that was a real mistake. Uh, it, it actually made my job easier. And I found that a fully informed, fully educated board uh, brought their intellect and expertise to bear. And quite frankly, that in itself can keep you from making mistakes as the CEO. Uh, so to help develop a board is gratifying. And um, I think it's a gross misperception that the CEO must control the board and, and even to some degree keep them in the dark. Hugh, it was an absolute pleasure to have you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, it's my honor. And frankly, this is something I'm very passionate about. I believe we still can see improvement in healthcare governance. That was Just Healthcare's Senior Vice President Jennifer Stewart and Senior Governance Advisor and former CEO of Baptist Health, Hugh Green. If you want to read more of Jennifer's insights on governance, go to JustHealthcare.com. Thanks for listening to Just Healthcare Daily. I'm Alex Olkin. You can check out more insights on healthcare business and policy news on JustHealthcare.com. Just Healthcare Daily is an independent production of Just Healthcare. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.